and hello everybody, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses Podcast. We are still exploring a little bit of queer theory, so you can get a feel for what queer theory is all about. Of course, I don't want to call it queer theory. I want to call it queer Marxism. I want people to understand that, in fact, queer Marxism is the right name for what they call queer theory, even though queer theory derives from, say, postmodernism more significantly than most of the other contemporary branches of identity-based Marxism. Let me explain how it's queer Marxism, and then I'm going to read this rather fascinating paper. You know, recently we went through Gail Rubin's first paper in queer theory as a three-part series here on the podcast. Um, that was the, the paper Thinking Sex. I still intend to try to weave in between all the education stuff and other stuff that's coming up, try to weave in some of the uh, other older queer theory, Eve Sedgwick's Epistemology of the Closet, probably is going to come soon, sooner or later. I've got to, got to get into Judith Butler, as you're going to hear in the episode today. She is kind of central. She is maybe the fairy godmother of queer theory. Um, maybe at some point we'll have to backwards track backwards further into Michel Foucault and the history of sexuality, but I don't know if I want to keep digging and digging. In this episode, we're actually talking about something quite recent. This is a, another paper from 2021, which is that I'm going to go through today, which is the same as going the same year, I should say, is going through the other recent queer theory and education paper I just did uh, for the podcast, which is about Drag Queen Story Hour. And if you recall in the Groomer Schools series, which that's number four now, there's a number two, which went through queer theory and early childhood education and the idea of destroying childhood innocence. So I'm trying to give you a flavor of queer theory where it came from and queer theory where it is now and kind of address the question that when you deal with a queer Marxism, that the, the, you know, the, the slope's always slippery. I've said that the slope, in fact, is being lubed by the queer Marxists to make it super, super slippery. And the question that you know we want to answer, in some sense, is, is there a stopping point? Does this ever stop? Does it ever have a place where it says, okay, enough is enough? And the answer is no. Queer theory already conquered feminism. That's beyond debate. Or as Hegel liked to put it, you know, history uses people and then discards them. So queer theorists, or Marxists, I should say, used feminists and have discarded them in favor of queer theory, which has cannibalized it from within and burst out. Um, but let me give you, before we dive into this ridiculous paper about incest and disability, through the lens of queer theory, which is what we're going to cover today, just to give you an idea that this has no, there are no breaks on the queer theory train. There are none. It is relentless destruction of everything. I want to frame that in terms of how it's queer Marxism, just so we can touch on that and make sure everybody's on the same page about what we're looking at when we read this. Um, so Karl Marx, kind of in a nutshell, and I've done this a number of times, but you have to keep hearing it. You have to understand. Karl Marx, kind of in a nutshell, believed that there are certain people who have a certain have access to a certain kind of property. You always think with Marxism in the most general sense that there's some special kind of property that certain people have access to, and they exclude other people from access to it, and thus give themselves benefit in society, give themselves higher standing or privilege in society, and exclude other people intentionally from it. This sets up a stratification. It's a power dynamic, and it sets up a stratification of people who have on top and people who do not have on bottom with regard to that special property. For Marx, capitalists had private property and excluded other people from being able to have it. So you have the people who have 
private property, that's their special form of property, capital, and people who are have-nots, who don't have access to capital or special property, who are exploited by the people who have it. The people on top create a mythology, a religion, if you will, a social religion, justifying why they get to be on top. This is Marx's view. The name he gave for this social mythology or religion is ideology. So they create an ideology of capitalism to justify why they get to have access to special property and other people don't. The other piece of Marxism, besides the fact that you have this idea of a broken, a stratified society in conflict over some kind of property that only some people give themselves access to and exclude everybody else, is that people, especially on the underclass, but in both classes, can be awakened to the so-called reality created by this structural dynamic. That's what it was referred to as a structure of society. The upper class was a superstructure for society. The underclass is an infrastructure. Their dynamic interplay, which is described by dialectical materialism, to throw out more historical words for you, is called a structural phenomenon in society. It creates a structure to society, and it's the real conditions of society, according to Marx. And Marx believed he had devised the first real science of studying the structure of history and how that structure unfolds over time. And so people who have taken on his scientific study of the structural conditions of society, what he called the Wissenschaftlicher Sozialismus, that's German for the scientific socialism, understand that they uh, believe themselves, I should say, to, to be the sole people on earth who have the necessary insight to study the true nature of social reality as it actually is, and its intended purpose. Because it's a scientific socialism, the purpose is to open up the eyes of people to get them to realize that we are actually a socialist species, a communist species that would transcend the idea of the special kind of property. Marx said that's the specific purpose. If you read in the uh, Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts, I think it's in the third manuscript, but you can check me. Maybe it's the second one. It's not the first one. Um, from 1844, Marx makes very clear that the point isn't to have some crude communism where you hate private property, but rather a more refined transcend transcendent communism where the idea of private property is transcended entirely and that's when real communism will be tried, and because nobody's ever reached the transcendent state, real communism has never been tried yet. That's their belief. Now, what in the world is queer theory? Queer theory is a belief that certain people in society have designated themselves as the normal people in society, and other people outside of that are abnormal in one way or another. This is why Michel Foucault's postmodern philosophy is so relevant. His first major works were things like The Birth of the Clinic, A History of Madness, and he studied the idea of the social construction of madness, of being crazy, how it's used to exclude certain ideas like dissident thought, but also genuinely crazy stuff from mainstream discourses, and thus to create social control. He goes on to write a parallel to this history of madness that's a history of sexuality, and that's the title of a four-volume work that was, I think, intended to be six volumes that he wrote in the 70s. And the history of sexuality um, does the same thing for homosexuality. It says that homosexuality was designated historically as, you know, demon possession, mortal sin, you know, whatever, in the kind of old, old days in the religious paradigm, and then it became a psychopathology um, in the kind of scientific paradigm. 
and then it, uh, you know, how, how has this evolved and progressed? But the idea is that homosexuality is something that has been excluded intentionally as abnormal, as opposed to heterosexuality, which uh, literally defines homosexuality. You can't understand homosexuality without understanding heterosexuality and vice versa, he says. Um, it would merely be sexuality otherwise. Uh, so uh, they create one another, and this has created a regime of control that, that falls over all of society, creating a set of normal and abnormal within sexuality. So you have abnormal and normal within um, madness. You have normal and abnormal within sexuality, sex, gender, and sexuality. This expanded to in the post-structural feminists who wanted to overcome the gender binary, wanted to overcome gender, uh, gendered sex roles, as it were, um, gender-critical feminists, which we now kind of think are the good guys because they're against the trans thing because they're only gender critical. They're not sex critical as well. But the queer theorists became sex and sexuality critical in the 1980s following people like Gail Rubin, Eve Sedgwick, and Judith Butler, who I've just described, who picked up off of Foucault's ideas. So what you have then is this idea that certain people have designated themselves as normal. Those people as normal define what gets to be called normal and what gets to be classified as abnormal, which means not like them. So there's a special kind of cultural or social property called normalcy that gives you special access and benefit and privilege in society. And people outside of that are excluded from it, which stratifies society into the normal versus the abnormal. Or in the contemporary parlance, thanks to queer theory, the normal versus the queer. Marx said that Communism can be summarized in a single sentence, the abolition of private property, and so queer theory can be summarized in a single sentence, the abolition of the concept of normal, of normalcy itself. Normalcy is the special property. Queers are the ones excluded from it. Queer theory is the Marxist theory. Queer Marxism is the Marxist theory of that conflict across that stratification, where the people who have the queer identity therefore have the special insight that allows them to be the movers of history by seizing the means of cultural and social production, and even the production of their own bodies and identities. And so now we understand queer theory, we understand the trans phenomenon, we understand all of it as a Marxist theory of sex, gender, sexuality, and more. So it turns out that fat studies often dips into, as just one example, the queer theory rhetoric, saying that fat bodies are abnormal, so they're queered, and as queer theory methods can be used, uh, as they're queer, queer theory methods can be used to bring fat into a uh, dialectical relationship with thin, which is considered normal and normative and preferred, and challenge that. It turns out this happens within disability studies as well. You can see dis being disabled as being queer to the normal state of being abled or able-bodied. When you have disability studies mate with queer theory, it creates a thing, I'm kidding you not at all, called crip theory. Crip is short for cripple, because like queer, where they've tried to take a former slur and turn it back into a positive discourse, as Kimberly Crenshaw indicated in Mapping the Margins, is the goal of all of this identity Marxism as an anchor for subjectivity and a positive discourse of resistance. The disabled queer activists have taken the word cripple and turned it into a positive discourse of resistance and a anchor for their subjectivity as Marxist activists. And they call the result crip theory which is short for cripple theory, which is the idea that being crippled, which is the slur apparently for being disabled, is a site that they can rally around. So here we arrive at this paper in 
2021's Queer Marxism Intersecting with Disability Studies, which is called Cripping Incest Discourses. In other words, taking the queer disabled thing, crip theory, and looking at the way we talk about incest to break open the idea of the taboo around incest. Now, the author doesn't so much advocate for incest itself. He just says we should change the way we talk about it because it reproduces certain harms that bother him, in particular ableist harms, because this is about cripping it. The author's name is Ryan Thornycroft, um, and I cannot see on this page where Ryan Thornycroft goes. Western Sydney University, Sydney, Australia, in the School of Social, Social Sciences. Nice work, mates down under. This paper, by the way, was published in Sexuality and Culture, 2021. Sexuality and Culture has a claim to fame to it. It is the exact same journal that in 2018, myself and Peter Bergoshin and Helen Pluckrose humiliated by getting them to accept a paper and praise, vigorously praise, and publish a paper that we wrote, a fake paper, arguing that the reason that men, straight men, tend to be transphobic is because they don't practice putting things in their butts. And so we really did write this paper saying that there's this phenomenon of trans hysteria and it prevents straight men from practicing anal insertion, as it were. And if they were to practice that, they might overcome their transphobia and become less transphobic as a result. And so the advice given in this horrific paper on terrible evidence, we claim to have interviewed 13 men, only eight of whom were straight for the paper, so five of them don't even count, and then concluded that we should advise straight men to practice um, inserting things into their butts in order to overcome their transphobia, which is a really, really weird thing to have done. But this journal accepted it. One of its reviewers called it an important contribution to knowledge, which is, I think, my favorite statement anybody's ever made about any of my work, ever. And here, Sexuality and Culture, three years later, is publishing Cripping Incest Discourses. So this is Queer Theory 2021. Like you've heard in Gail Rubin, you will hear in Sedgwick, and you're going to hear a lot about Judith Butler today. There's Queer Theory 1985-4-ish through 1993. I guess that's really a formative window. Um, Gail Rubin's Thinking Sex is 84. Um, Judith Butler's Bodies That Matter is 93. And kind of the formative years lie in that decade uh, of queer theory. But what we have is a development of a post-structural feminist reinvention of Marxism in queer Marxism, which is all this is. And like I said, the idea is that there's a special form of property called normalcy that people who are considered normal, who consider themselves normal, I should say, give to themselves, and they create an ideology called something like cis-heteronormativity to justify why that's the case, why they get to be normal and other people are excluded from normalcy. They use you know, pieces within that ideology like the science of biology to justify the sex binary and all of these horrible things, according to queer theory, that are actually ideological constructions used to justify and defend their privilege not actual reflections of real reality. And so just like with Drag Queen Story Hour being necessary in education in 2021, just like the idea of the destruction of childhood innocence being a key theme in early childhood education, according to queer theorists in the past five to six years, explaining much of what we see in our schools, we now have cripping incest discourses, which means bringing a queer theory analysis into disability studies and using that to now 
question whether or not we should have a taboo on incest. I kid you not. I'm not even joking. Okay, so let's see what it has to say. Abstract. In this article, I chart the ableist presuppositions associated with the incest taboo. See, there's an incest taboo, and he is going to chart. I'm assuming he. One never knows. He's going to chart the ableist presuppositions. So it's the, 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 the discussion, the taboo around incest needs to be rethought. We need to talk about it more. We need to understand where it comes from and why, why it's there. And in, in particular, we need to look at it in terms of ableism. Why? Because we all know that if you engage in incest and produce offspring, they're far more likely to be disabled or deformed. Or the R word that I can't say and is going to be really hard not to say over and over and over again in this um, podcast. You know, the, the one that Claire Lehman called me. That R word. Um, but you can't say it on YouTube, so we're just going to say the R word. And it's the most R-worded paper I've ever read in my life. But anyway, specifically, the author says, Ryan says, well, Thornycroft, I, I, I interrogate two ways, just two, in which incest is deployed as a particular form of knowledge. Incest is a particular form of knowledge. Let it sink in. Why? Because this is all broader in a broader picture, all of this newest Marxism is actually, the woke Marxism, is actually a Marxist theory of knowledge. Woke is knowledge Marxism. That's going to have to be its own podcast to explain it. But it's the same construction I just did for you. As people get to people who are in power get to decide what knowledge is and isn't and exclude other people from it. If you read chapter 8 of Cynical Theories, where Helen and I are trying to talk about something we don't know what to call it, it's reified postmodernism, it's kind of this woke thing, um, and we're not quite sure social justice scholarship we refer to it as, and we go through these kind of epistemological papers by people like Miranda Fricker and Christy Dotson and all this, and we honestly, looking back at it, we didn't know what we were looking at. What we were looking at is a Marxist theory of, no of knowing, and that's where all of what we called social justice scholarship lives. And that has a lot to do with the postmodernists, as we were correct in identifying, but it also has a lot to do with Paulo Freire in the development of critical education theory, which we were less aware of and less um, attentive to at the time. And so why is incest a form of knowledge? Incest is deployed as a particular form of knowledge because it's ultimately when you have a Marxist theory of knowledge, you can create a Marxist theory of anything by saying that the knowledge produced and recognized within whatever that thing happens to be is and creates discourses as a mechanism and creates discourses that promote and benefit certain people while excluding others, blah, 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 Marxism, conflict theory, yada, yada, yada. So he interrogates two ways in which incest is deployed as a particular form of knowledge and consequently prohibited because of such knowledges. See, it's only the knowledges about incest that lead us to prohibit it. It has nothing to do with, you know, anything else. Like that when you grow up with your sister, you actually are not sexually attracted to her or something like that because of things that actually happen in your brain that have to do with the family ties that you make through the, you know, oxytocin and whatever else. But anyway, first, the knowledge... So these are the two ways. First, the knowledge that incest creates inbreeding and attendant, quote, abnormalities. And second, that incest is a threat to the sanctity of the family. So those are the two things he wants to challenge. The idea that there are abnormalities, you can kind of see where this is going if you've already guessed what cripping is about. 
it's going to be very obvious, you know, where this paper is going is that it's not fair to center upon non-deformed babies, non-R-worded babies, non-disabled babies. That's ableist to do that. That's the main argument. And then secondly, though, that incest is a threat to the sanctity of the family, you know, because having sex with your mom or your sister or whatever certainly doesn't mess some weird, you know, something up in the whole family structure that the weird queer theorist people don't understand how things work, and they literally seem not to get it. They live in the social constructivist, I don't even know the word, swamp or something where they don't know what a woman is because they can't know what a woman is because that would be too concrete for them, and so it, it wouldn't be socially constructed, and it, they, they need this perfect socially constructed definition, and so they don't know what's going on in reality at all, because they're not interested in reality. They're only interested in the way that social constructions shape the way that people's subjective range or subjective, uh, what am I saying, um, their, the range in which they can understand themselves as conscious subjects, as Marx put it, um, or had it. Uh, is limited by the way that we think about things, knowledges, and discourses. This is modern, woke knowledge Marxism being applied through disabled and queer theory. Now, when we're going to hear a lot about Judith Butler when we talk about how incest is a threat to the sanctity of the family because that's one of the things she went after. Gross enough. I challenge both of these assertions on the basis that they are grounded in ableist and heteronormative ways of thinking. So there you have it. We're going to challenge the idea that incest should be prohibited because of inbreeding causing abnormalities, which is in scare quotes because they don't believe in abnormal. Remember, normal versus abnormal reproduces the fundamental binary of queer theory that must be abolished. We have to abolish the concept of normal entirely, so you can't call something abnormal. But that's the discursive tool that the people in power use to maintain their structure of the world. And secondly, the sanctity of the family that's also going to be challenged through thinking differently about incest. So, like I said, he challenges both of these assertions on the basis that they are grounded in ableist and heteronormative ways of thinking, which then have to be overturned. We have to change the way that we think, and then we can change the way that we imagine, and we can reimagine a new world free of these limitations. That's Marxism. We can transform the world into the thing that we envision in our subjective consciousness, then create it in reality and see ourselves to be the creators of that which we envisioned. That's Marxism. That's the theology of Marxism. While I dwell on the theoretical aspects of this analysis, he says, in the second half of the article, I move to explore the ethico-political dimensions that arise from th such theorizations. So, see, he's just off in the abstract clouds, and then he'll talk about the political and ethical implications of encouraging incest and encouraging inbred, deformed babies. Drawing on the intersections of quip, uh, sorry, I, I blended them. Drawing on the intersections of crip slash queer theory, I wonder whether we should, quote, fuck the future. Yeah, they're fucking our future, all right, aren't they? I wonder whether we should fuck the future or whether we should imagine a queer slash crip future that is not yet here. Do you hear the Marxism yet? Transform the world into what it should have been by the direction of the conscious seizing control of the means of production of society and man. Marxism in a nutshell. Such choices, he says, I hope, will help us inform our understandings and approaches toward incestuous practices. 
Like, dude, turn off the stepsister porn and wheel your wheelchair outside and join a wheelchair basketball team or something. Like, jeez. Is that ableist or something? I don't know. Introduction. Incest defies easy categorization and definition. Yet it is popularly understood as a sexual relationship between related people and contemporaneously recognized as operating within the nuclear family. Let's just start at the beginning. Make everything super complicated so you can have the Gnostics step in and tell you how it works. What is a woman? I don't know. Well, that means that we get to tell you what a woman is. We, as the gender theorists, know what a woman is and what a woman isn't. You, dear pleb, can't tell. You're not awake. You're not enlightened. You're not woke. You don't have the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus of queerness. You don't know what a woman is, so we will tell you what a woman is. Same with incest. Incest defies easy categorization and definition. They almost all start this way. It's hard to, so many of our grievance studies papers started with, it's hard to define any of this. But let me go ahead and tell you some mind-blowing nonsense. Contemporary attitudes, he says, toward incest are almost universally constituted as morally repugnant. You don't say. Such is the power of these attitudes. Mm -hmm. It's just the attitudes. So these people are social constructivists. It's just the social constructions around a thing that make something morally repugnant. Morality is up for grabs, and the higher, more enlightened Gnostics can tell you what the right and wrong answers to all your moral questions are, because they have the enlightened vision that you don't possess. That's the special knowledge, the gnosis, which they got from taking that bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. This is their religion. Anyway, contemporary attitudes toward incest are almost universally constituted as morally repugnant. Such is the power of these attitudes. Society is cloaked by the incest taboo. The moral, social, legal, and political prohibition of sexual relations between closely related people. Society's fear goes even further. We cannot talk about it. We cannot desire it. And especially, we cannot talk about desiring it. Dude. Dude. I agree. You probably shouldn't be talking about wanting to bone your sister. Gotcha. Part of the... Effacement of incest and social discourse also seems to be due to the conflation between incest and incest abuse. See, because there's the incest that's abusive, like when your relatives rape you. And then there's the incest that's not abusive, like when you want to have sex with your sister. These people, you're hearing again and again the same theme in queer theory, don't understand boundaries, which is why they shouldn't be allowed around children. They don't understand. I, I mean, I, I almost lost an editor for something I wrote one time because I said, these people don't know how to human correctly. And that, that was apparently a dehumanizing statement, but it's really evident. It's almost like seeing color blindness and saying, well, they can't see all the colors, except it's like propriety in, in their brain. They can't understand why you don't do kink in public in front of children. They can't understand why you wouldn't bring children to sexualized performances or sexualize them outright or turn them into drag queens or, you know, engage in incest. All we're hearing is this lack of understanding of boundaries. Society's just afraid of incest. We can't even talk about it. We can't talk about it. We can't desire it. We can't talk about it. We can't even talk about desiring it. Oh my gosh, that's especially. 
And part of the reason is because we are too stupid to be able to tell the difference between incest and incest abuse when the victim wants it and when the victim doesn't. Conversely, the topic of incest has been discussed thoroughly by many of history's leading political theorists, from Plato to Cicero, Augustine and Aquinas, Hobbes and Locke, Hegel and Nietzsche, Freud and Lacan, Foucault and Butler, and many more. It may very well be that the efforts to censor culminates in a, quote, incitement to discourse. And here we cite Michel Foucault from History of Sexuality. It may very well be that the efforts to censor culminates in an incitement to discourse. Exhaustive attempts have been made throughout history to try and explain the incest taboo. Durkheim, 1897, for example, posited that the incest taboo arose from the rule of exogamy, that is, the custom of marrying outside of, cl of clans that evolved in preliterate communities. Freud, 1913, informed largely by an analysis of Australian aboriginals and his psychoanalytic imperatives, felt the nurturing relationships between parents and offspring, and particularly between mother and son, created repressed sexual desires, and in turn a threat that needed to be renounced to help preserve the stability of the nuclear family and, in turn, society at large. There's a funny, funny meme I saw one time that said, I showed Freud sitting there thinking, imagining, and it says, no, no, it's not that I want to have sex with my mother, it's that everybody wants to have sex with their mothers. And we're reminded, since Nietzsche was just invoked, of Nietzsche's famous quip that philosophers mostly don't do philosophy, they mostly rationalize their own pathologies in big, fancy academic words. We carry on with, with Thornrimple, or whatever this guy's name is. Thus, for Freud, again, 1913, the rule of exomony, sorry, exogamy, mating outside of clan, and the incest taboo were created in fear of our sexual desires for our parents and their perceived deleterious outcomes. These people are lunatics. Westermark, 1894, took a very different approach in his account and, and argued that closely related people do not, contrary to Durkheim and Freud, share erotic feelings between each other. This absence, according to Westermark, explains the phenomenon of exogamy. Westermark, in 1926, further argued that inbreeding is, quote, injurious to the species and leads to inbreeding depression, a point I turn to shortly. Sounds like we're closer to the actual mark here, there. More contemporaneously, Parsons, 1954, argues that incestuous desires are a key driver in the emotional growth of children and that desire must be repressed to help nourish growth in broader extrafamilial roles. So again, we're seeing this inability to understand that nature might be a bigger player in things. Westermark kind of had that on point than nurture, but the social constructivists believe that everything is nurture and the nature-nurture dichotomy. Everything is nurture, and the way that nurture works is through a poisonous conflict theory where there are uh, people who get to set the tone of what nurture is supposed to be, and they exclude other views because it's to their own benefit. Specifically, incest, according to Parsons, must be prohibited to ensure a person's success beyond their own family. 
Now, this is really going to start looking at the issue. I, I haven't read this Parsons, but one of the arguments that tucks within this is the idea that by combining families, you start to build networks, particularly of wealth and resources. And so success becomes more community rather than locked up in a single clan, blah, blah, blah. In contrast, Levi-Strauss, 1949, suggested that societies become integrated via two fundamental mechanisms, A, the redistribution of scarce resources, and B, exchange systems based upon, built upon reciprocal gift-giving. On this latter point, it is a relationship imbricated in the exchange and not the objects exchanged themselves that build solidarity and integration. Thus, for Levi-Strauss, exogamy, again, that means mating outside of your clan or family, working as a form of gift-giving and exchange is non-viable without the incest taboo. See what Levi-Strauss, who is a structuralist who precedes the post-structuralists, who precedes the postmodernists, who precedes woke, what Levi-Strauss is arguing is that you have to have an incest taboo as a structural phenomenon, as a concept, to repress the sexual urges that people would otherwise have between family members because then they're going to meet with their family members who are closer rather than going out and then gift giving and exchange between clans, which builds a broader society, which is the thing I was just talking about. So whether Parsons talks about it or not, Levi Strauss certainly does. Imagine thinking that that's why you don't want to bone your sister. Many of these contributions have their own benefits and drawbacks, and some help to explain incest avoidance rather than the incest taboo. Now, that means we're going to focus not on why we actually avoid incest, but why there's a taboo about it, because that's if they want to change the discourses about things. This Cripping Incest Discourse is the title of the paper. They want to change how we talk about, thus think about, the issue of incest. So we're not going to worry about why we actually avoid incest. No, no, no. We're going to talk about why we have a taboo, because we have to get rid of the taboo, because taboos create categories of normal and abnormal, and those are intrinsically harmful according to queer theory, because they uphold what they would see as a bogus definition of normal, and thus harm people. They, they engage in a violence of categorization, for example, by categorizing people as good or bad, uh, perverts, um, degenerates or motherfuckers, I don't know, um, and thus put them down. It's virtually impossible to provide a... Con now, by the way, since I've written these fake papers for the, literally this journal, um, I can tell you what we just read through is the part where you try to make it sound like you're doing something scholarly when what you're about to do is assert a bunch of bullcrap opinions. So we got to get through the part where you pretend you're a scholar so we can get to the part where it's really, truly insane. It's virtually impossible to provide a comprehensive account of the incest taboo within this relatively short text, but ultimately that is not my intention. Noting Turner and Mary's, Mariansky's 2016 observation that virtually every explanation is, quote, virtually every explanation that has been offered for its origins contains an element of the answer as to why it emerged, end quote. I refine my inquiry to two contemporarily powerful yet equally biologically reductionist conceptualizations of the incest taboo. Okay, so social constructivists really don't like when you boil something down to biology. In fact, they don't want biology to be part of anything at all, because biology is part of the overarching 
ideological structure that people use to justify why they get to say certain things are normal and other things aren't. So it's a bogus science. Biology is. The point of biology is not, in fact, to study what's actually going on in the world, but it's rather to study what's going on in the world through a particular perspective of normalcy that upholds that definition of normalcy, that keeps the people who believe in that definition of normalcy in power. That's why they can't define what a woman is. That's why when Kentanji Brown Jackson was asked by Marsha Blackburn on the stand, what is a woman? And she said, do I look like a biologist? She actually committed a transphobia. Biology doesn't answer that question. It's biologically reductionist conceptualization of woman. You have to use a social constructivist conceptualization of woman, which you can hear extensively in Walsh's, Matt Walsh, who started the What is a Woman movement documentary film he made called What is a Woman? You should see that. You'll see the social constructivism very, very clearly. So we don't want to use biologically reductionist conceptualizations of the incest taboo. Instead, we want to make sure we stay in social constructivist ones and apply a critical theory lens to that. Particularly, he says, I am interested in two accounts of the incest taboo that butt up against disability politics. Because that's, of course, how you would want to go about this. First, the knowledge that incest creates inbreeding and attendant, quote, abnormalities. And second, the incest is a threat to the sanctity of the institution of the family. I challenge both of these assertions on the basis that they are grounded in ableist and heteronormative modes of thinking. So, we already covered that in the abstract. I won't rant, rant and rave about it again till we get to those parts. I am motivated, he says, to insert disability politics into this discussion because of the ways in which disability figures as an absent presence, citing Derrida within incest discourses. Okay, so absence. Derrida had this idea of, of absence where basically the, the, the simplest summary of what it is is the thing that you're not talking about tells you as much as the things that you're talking about. That which is absent is present by the fact that it's absent. You know, when we would say, conspicuously missing is any reference to blah, blah, blah. Imagine that like taken to literally everything. So here we have to bring in disability because disability discourses are actually disability studies, which is to say disability Marxism or ability Marxism discussions are notoriously absent from talking about the incest taboo. That's what he's saying. We don't talk about the incest taboo in terms of disability, which means we just accept the fact by absence that disability is a relevant topic. Like the fact that when you incest that your children have a very high probability of coming out deformed or R-worded or uh, with other birth defects, we just accept that as a fact. And we don't challenge it as a social construction meant to, um, for him, not just enforce the incest taboo and prevent talking about desiring your sister or mother, but also not just that, but also to further stigmatize disabled people. That's what he's going to argue is going on here, believe it or not. As Linton, 1998, notes, quote, although the so-called reflective disciplines, such as philosophy, literature, rhetoric, art, and history, evoke disability everywhere, they seem unable to reflect upon it. Now, I can't actually say I'm sorry, see the word reflective in this regard and not think of Hegel's speculative method. Speculative refers to speculum, and I know you're all doing your hee-hee gynecologist joke here, but speculum is the Latin for mirror, 
And Hegel's idea was that the way that you get an insight to what the real idea, the absolute idea is, is that you look at the you, you think of the of the so-called the theoretical idea and you reflect on what you see in the practical idea and you let that bounce off of a cosmic mirror into the clouds where you get a glimpse of the absolute idea that they are both reflections of, that they are both images of, and thus you can come closer to the actual absolute idea by reflection. So you can get closer to the utopia or closer to the perfection by reflecting upon the idea. And so here we see, although the so-called reflective disciplines such as philosophy, literature, rhetoric, art, and history evoke disability everywhere, they seem unable to reflect upon it. They don't reflect upon disability. They don't look at it in terms of how they might get to the perfect ideal society. There's a footnote here that says, I think the same can be said of incest. Siri also notes that while incest, and it's not Siri like your phone, that's S-E-E-R-Y, also notes that while incest is subjected to theoretical discussion, it is usual, it, quote, usually sits at the margins, sorry, more at the margins than in the mainstream. Yeah, we don't talk about incest at the mainstream. You're correct. We we have marginalized it, and the taboo works to enforce that marginalization, and it's good for all the reasons you're going to say don't make any sense. You fool. These contributions, he tells us, are approached in ableist and taken-for-granted ways that take disability as an objectivist and ontologically negative position that fails to engage in an alternative and ultimately efficacious engagement with progressive crip politics discussed shortly. Now that was a lot of big ten-syllable words that means what? It means that we take for granted, as he says, that disability isn't as good as being fully abled, right? And so we create a discourse and a belief that having, say, access to a special kind of property like being fully able-bodied is um, better than or more privileged than um, not having that, so by being disabled. See, because the view in disability or ability Marxism, the, the view is that certain people get to define what it means to be able-bodied, and they set up society to justify, or to, to work for them, but not for others. And so they actually are the ones who disable disabled people by disabling them, by making society not work for them. They're actually, I saw a video one time that tried to convey this idea, and it showed a world where everybody lives in wheelchairs, and so all the doors are low, all the counters are low, etc., and, and then all the houses have small, low ceilings and all this. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's people who have normal use of their legs standing up tall. And they're always, you know, the counters are at their knees. They're banging into things all the time. They can't go through the door. And so, ta-da, it's the construction of society that actually is disabling the people. The people standing tall, never mind that they could walk around to the side of the wheelchair and just knock any of them over anytime they wanted to. Or literally outrun all the wheelchair people. Um, or do all kinds of things with their legs that wheelchair people can't do. Um, never mind that. Uh, you know, things that humans evolved to be able to do with their legs. Never mind any of that. It's that they constructed society to be accommodating to people who have both their legs, as opposed to being building society out for people in a wheelchair that actually disables the wheelchair people, because we could have built society for the wheelchair people instead. And then that would even disable the people who are fully able-bodied. So that's what they mean by fails to engage in, oh, sorry, I skipped some words, that, that takes disability as an objectivist and ontologically negative position. That's what they mean by that. That fails to engage in alternative and ultimately efficacious engagement with progressive crypt politics. In other words, listen to us because we're 
the Gnostics on this issue, but what we're going to do when we have efficacious engagement with this alternative is that we're going to convince you that this is the way the world really works. And so what the argument in this paper is going to be is that we're talking about incest in terms of creating disabled, deformed, R-worded babies, and we wouldn't care about any of that if we thought that disabled, deformed, and R-worded babies were just as good as all the other babies. See, it's ableist. See? See? Thus, he says, in prohibiting incest, scholars draw upon disability as a justification for its prohibition. See? Because you don't want disabled, deformed, and R-worded babies. So we justify not doing things that dramatically increase the probability that you're going to end up with that. Because we, see, this is where they say we're oppressing. We, this was what they said. Taken for granted ways that disability is an objectively, uh, sorry, objectivist and ontologically negative position, that it's objectively worse to be, uh, it has something to do with objective reality, that it's worse and different to be disabled rather than enabled, instead of seeing it as a society disabling people. See, this is what I'm saying. This is literally the backwards-ass argument the guy's going to give. So thus, in prohibiting incest, scholars draw upon disability as a justification for its prohibition, and in so doing, adopt the perspective that disability is only and always reductively abnormal and negative, and something to be regulated in fear that disability is created. See, you're not. <laughs> we're going to regulate you humping your sister or your mother because we would, we're afraid we're going to create disability, which means we don't really want disabled people. And you can see where they're going to talk about disabled genocides and things, you know, down the line. If we could say, heal all the disabled people, this mentality literally has that. If we invented medical technology that could cure all the disabled people and we give them fully functional bodies again, uh, or for the first time or whatever, depending on their circumstances, then we would be genociding disabled people because we have a fear of disabled people, people, disabled phobia, maybe, and their existence that we would want to then obliterate. You think I'm a kidding, but they, they literally say this about technology that cures deafness or blindness in certain cases that it creates a deaf or blind genocide. I'm not joking. The fat scholars who take the same approach will say that encouraging weight loss programs encourages a fat genocide because we don't want fat people who create a fat culture. So we want to do a genocide. We want to destroy a fat nation and kill off all of its cultural inhabitants. I'm not kidding. My contribution, back to the paper, seeks to highlight the ubiquitous yet simultaneously invisible nature of ableism that operates in our society, that is, behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs that presume that the able body, abled body is the normal, natural, and better body. So everything I just said is confirmed by the time we get to the end of that paragraph, because I didn't make any of it up, and I keep trying to tell you people I'm not making this stuff up. Rather than adopt the position, he says, that disability is negative, my contribution seeks to shift the gaze from disability to ability and ableism to consider the ways in which disability is made a problem in the first place. I just explained how it is. We don't build out a society that's accommodating to disabled people, so we disable them. We prefer healthy, not deformed, R-worded, disabled babies whenever possible because we want them to live a normal, full life whenever possible. But that is us making disability a problem, according to the social constructivists. We're not fully accepting of it. And if we were fully accepting of it and had a right empathy or whatever else, then we wouldn't see it as a problem or a difference or a challenge or anything. We would see it as equally good 
and obliterate the idea that there is a form of property of normalcy like being able-bodied in the first place completely using CRIP, aka queer, disabled theory to understand it, which is a form of Marxism. Davis argues that this that it is not disabled people who have problems. See, we're going to do it, I'm telling you. But rather, the, quote, problem is the way that normalcy and ableism is constructed to create the, quote, problem of the disabled person, end quote. Did you hear it? What did I tell you? I didn't make it up. The problem is not being disabled. It is, in fact, instead, the way that normalcy and ableism is constructed to create the so-called problem of the disabled person. A central thread of this essay, back to the original author, is to foreground ableist processes, relations, and effects, and I use the incest taboo to do that work. While my exposition of incestuous discourses may not do justice to the realities and specificities of incestuous practices, I am rather more interested in deconstructing and subverting ableist and heteronormative thinkings, doings, and beings. Ableism creates a set of effects that pathologize disabled bodies and lives and relatedly instantiate the prohibition of incest. These processes and practices must be visibilized and problematized if we are, to, if we are interested in arresting these cycles of violence. So there's a lot to unpack there. What we're seeing is, again, same thing, Marxist theory of ability. I think you can hear it able-bodiedness, which can be understood as a form of normalcy if we want to do it through queer theory or queer, crip theory, or if we don't, if we want to do it through disability studies, able-bodiedness is a form of special property afforded only to certain people who get to define what it means to be normal and get to construct society and our discourses about things around everything so as to privilege themselves and to exclude the disabled or abnormal from full participation in society, which sets up an ideology called ableism that justifies this, along with a enforcement mechanism called disableism, which is that we're going to use our status as able-bodied to disable other people. I'm not even kidding, okay? So we have that. And he's not really interested in incest. He's just using incest as a tool to bring out this stuff about disability, to talk about the fact that disabled, deformed, and R-worded babies are something undesirable, and therefore we don't like disabled, deformed, and R-words as much as we like other people. And that that's us creating oppression, you see, systemic oppression, uh, systemic ableism, as a matter of fact, and enforced with a system of disableism. This is their mindset. And then these processes and practices must be visibilized and problematized. In other words, in the Freirian language, they must be codified, made visible through some abstract image of them, and then problematize so that we can begin the decodification or conscientization process to make people into Marxists about these issues. All this crap goes together very tightly. My exposition, he says, can also be understood as an engagement with crip theory and cripping. I'm not even making that up. It's right there in print. Borrowing from Halperin's notion of queer, I take crip to, quote, not name some natural kind or refer to some determinant object, but to acquire its meaning from its oppositional relation to the norm. Crip is by definition whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, the dominant. See, he's replacing where it said crip. It used to say queer within Halperin's definition of queer and queer theory. So the original would say that queer is not some name 
uh, queer, sorry, does not name some natural kind or refer to some determinate object, but it acquires its meaning from its oppositional relation to the norm. Queer, and but here crip, is by definition whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, and the dominant. So this is the queer theorist's definition of queer, by the way. Queer is by definition in italics, whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, and the dominant. There is nothing in particular, he says, to which it necessarily refers. It is an identity without an essence. Now, you've heard me say that again and again and again and again and again. Queer is an identity without an essence. And people are like, don't say complicated things. Don't say it. It's a negative identity. It's an oppositional identity. It is an identity without an essence. It's a direct quote from Halperin. I think it's David Halperin. I'd have to double check that, that these things change because they're almost all trans too. So it gets complicated. Queer is whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, and the dominant. Whatever is normal, whatever is legitimate, whatever is dominant, that is the problem. Queer is that which opposes it, that which is against it in its oppositional relation to the norm. Crip is the same thing through disability. It's queer understood, understood through disability or it's disabled as a form of queerness. Whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, and the dominant. And again, there, this is an all in italics. There is nothing in particular to which queer necessarily refers. It is an identity without an essence. Okay, so crip is the same. Crip means understanding being disabled in terms of being queer, because you're disabled, because you're therefore abnormal. Got it? Further, I take Crip to define disabled identity, identity, quote, oppositionally and relationally, but not necessarily substantively, not positively, but as a positionality, not as a thing, but as a resistance to the norm. Again, quoting Halperin from the same paper. Oppositionally and relationally, but not necessarily substantively, not as a positivity, remember it's an opposition, it's a negativity, but as a positionality, not as a thing but as a resistance to the norm. Queer is a resistance to the norm. Crip is using disability as a resistance to the norm. And we're using that to understand incest in this brilliant sexualities paper. In this way, my account includes, but not exclusively, bodies interpolated as disabled. We don't want to just say interpreted or understood or that are disabled. They're interpolated as disabled. And I invoke aspects of disability politics and crypt theory to unpack the ways in which incest discourses are ableist. My interpretation of crip is reflective of my scholarly trajectory of a movement from disability studies to queer theory and then to crip theory. I am interested in the con uh, constitution of a space or zone between crip and queer and noticing <laughs> a space in between a zone between crip and queer. Okay. And noting Fritch and McGuire's argument that both, quote, flaunt the failures of normativity, I am interested in blurring the boundaries between them. One could say that our fake paper about fat bodybuilding did the same thing by saying, what's the deal? Bodybuilders are huge. They're not normal. They're queer, too, in a sense, if we went this way. And so why are we favoring them in bodybuilding competitions and not fat bodies, which are, according to fat theorists, large and therefore queer in the same way? Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. But he says that both flaunt the failures of normativity, and he is interested in blurring the boundaries between them, just like we wanted to blur the boundaries between fat and muscle. As McGrewer 
2002 also notes compulsory, compulsory abledness. Now, this is a whole thing. Compulsory abledness is intertwined with compulsory heterosexuality. Both of these vectors of power and oppression, compulsory abledness and heterosexuality, emerge throughout my analysis, and I am interested in using cripping as a pol- uh, crip and quipping. Cripping, actually, it's in parentheses, the last P I N G is, as a political and methodological tool to expose oppressive, normative, and ableist and heteronormative regimes, and in so doing, rewriting or cripping, or one might say queering existing assumptions, histories, theories, and embodiments. Now, that's a lot of nonsense, but let's go back to this compulsory, compulsory ableness. Abledness. Ableness. No D. Ableness. No, it, sometimes it's both. It's both. Abledness is the first time. Second time. Second time it's ableness. All right. Whatever. It's just made up words. So it doesn't matter if they have a consistent spelling or any spelling at all. I'm going to just call them LGBTQ by a BS. I don't know. Just spell them however you want. It doesn't matter. Okay, so compulsorily... Com- I keep saying it wrong. Compulsory heterosexuality is an idea that comes from Judith Butler, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to think about that. Actually, no, it has some other person that came up with it, but it's in Butler. Anyway, if I remember correctly, it's in... We, we talk about it in Cynical Theories. It's been a while. So the idea is that society makes being heterosexual compulsory. You're not really allowed to be queer. You're not really allowed to be gay or lesbian. Or, In fact, this was a theory from butch lesbians who were upset that they, you know, often didn't want to look feminine. And so they were pushed into compulsory heterosexuality to look and perform heterosexual, to pass, etc. Um, and the society expects people to be heterosexual. And so there's a heterosexual um, compulsion or there's a compulsory component to being heterosexual in society as a domination, as a, as like a technique of domination, as a, as a, it's the Marxist thing. It's the imposition of an identity upon people, the imposition of heterosexual as an identity, as the default normative thing that therefore queer exists to oppositionally oppose. Now we have compulsory abledness. Society expects you to be able-bodied. That's why we build, you know, so many wheelchair ramps and handicap parking spaces and elevators and wheel uh, you know disabled access and those things in the sidewalk so blind people can feel their way when you push the button to change to, to cross the street it makes a noise and tells you when you can cross the street and all of the subways do it and the elevator tells you which floor you're on in case you happen to be blind yada 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 that's why we have braille you know because of the compulsory abledness because society just expects you to be able bodied everywhere, always, all the time. And so we have to crip it, just like we have to queer heterosexuality, say, by bringing a little bit of homosexuality into heterosexuality. We talked about that in another episode. This essay starts, we haven't apparently started yet, by interrogating two ways in which the in, in which incest is deployed as a particular form of knowledge. For He's saying the same thing again, my God. The knowledge that incest creates inbreeding and attendant, quote, abnormalities, and second, that incest is a threat to the sanctity of the institution of the family. I wonder if the same reviewer saw this paper and called it an important contribution to knowledge. I challenge both of these assertions on the basis that they are grounded in ableist and heteronormative modes of thinking, literally repeating things. This is like the third time that we've seen this. Once was the abstract, I get it, usually repeat stuff, but nevertheless. 
noting the increasing allegiances between quip, I can't even say it, crip and queer theory and politics, see my own paper, plus some others, I then turn to the social and antisocial threads in queer theory and imagine whether we should, I'm not kidding, it says, fuck the future. They are fucking the future right up. They sure are. And imagine whether we should fuck the future, see Elderman. Edelman, sorry, 2004, or imagine a queer-slash-crip utopia that is yet to come. See Munoz, 2019. Now, Munoz is cited as the basis of that drag queen story hour I just did in uh, Groomer Schools 4. Same guy, same Munoz. So, a utopian future that is yet to come. So, that's whether you want it to be Freire, whether you want it to be Marcuse, whether you want that to be the way that the um, postmodernists like Adorno sorry, the critical theorists, not the postmodernists, the critical theorists like Adorno and Horkheimer talked about utopia. In particular, Adorno said you cannot cast a positive image of the utopia. Or sorry, you can't. There, it's not possible to cast an image of the utopia in the positive. But we can criticize what we don't like about this society. We can only do a negative dialectic. And Horkheimer said it's not possible to talk about what a good or an ideal society looks like on the terms of the existing society. That's why I created critical theory, he says. But we can criticize those aspects of the existing society that we don't like. And this is a utopian vision. Freire talks about it in terms of denouncing and announcing in the act of using a critical or conscientized perspective, a Marxist consciousness. When you denounce that which you don't like in society, you simultaneously automatically announce a new utopian world or a new new potential potential for a world, I should say, which in aggregate becomes a utopia. So we can imagine a queer slash crip utopia, which is yet to come, where basically everybody's queer and deformed and disabled and R-worded. It's going to be great. It's going to be the best utopia yet. I'm pausing because I'm really refraining from saying things that will get me canceled from YouTube forever. Incest discourses, and discourses in parentheses, so it may not matter. Incest and incest discourses can be imagined both within and beyond both these contexts and imaginaries. Our political approach in this text involves an incitement to discourse, mentioned earlier, that works to reinvent the existing discourses and practices through which incest is currently constituted. Yeah, because reworking incest is a great idea. Again, turn off the stepsister porn and go ride your wheelchair. I don't know if this guy's in a wheelchair or not. Straight to the basketball court and learn to throw a ball. Like, just do something real. Like, my goodness. And no... Stop watching the steps, stepsister, stepmom porn. It's like, come on. Incest, this is a section title. All the section titles, by the way, are a statement with a question mark in parentheses. So they're a statement and a question at the same time because we have to ask the question while asserting what we're doing. How queer. Incest creates inbreeding and biological abnormalities. And we'll read the question mark as, or does it? A common feature in incest discourse just soak those words in. Just soak them in. A common feature in incest discourse. Let them roll around in your mind. A common feature in incest discourse is the, quote, problem of inbreeding and its attendant effects. Problem really is in scare quotes. A common feature in incest discourse. Let the words just swim in your mind. A common feature. Let's go ASMR with this. A common feature in incest discourse is the, quote, problem of inbreeding and its attendant effects. 
Specifically, the problem of inbreeding, which refers to two people who share a common ancestor and engage in sexual intercourse, is presented as posing significant risks to potential offspring and thus should be discouraged to preserve the well-being of the future populations, family, and society at large. Such an interpretation can be understood as a form of, quote, latent eugenics. Such an interpretation can be understood as a form of latent eugenics. Not humping your mom and your sister so that you don't make disabled, deformed, and R-worded babies prevents disabled, deformed, and R-worded babies from coming into being, which is a form of, like, preemptive genocide, a.k.a. latent eugenics. So incest taboos are eugenic because they prevent disabled, deformed, and R-worded babies from being born through incestuous sexual relationships. Okay, that's what this paper is about. Westermark, 1894, argued more than 100 years ago, those of our ancestors who avoided in and inbreeding would survive while the others would gradually decay and ultimately perish. Thus, an instinct would be developed which would be powerful enough as a rule to prevent injurious unions. So remember, Westermark was the guy who probably had it right earlier. <laughs> he probably has it right again. This assumption of the origins and continuation of the incest taboo has not always been so prevalent, and the reception of these findings have ebbed and flowed over the preceding years. Over the preceding years. Recently, however, Wolf, 2005, has claimed that Western Mark's assertions have been, quote, proved right. And it is fair to say that the majority of scholarly work, and public opinion for that matter, now adopts Western Mark's position. Darn. This position holds that incest creates premature deaths, birth defects, intellectual disability, and more. Thus, one of the prevailing justifications for the incest taboo is that it prevents inbreeding and the attendant risk of biological, quote, abnormalities. Why is that in quotes every time? Because we can't define it as abnormal. We can't define birth defects as an abnormality. We can't define disabled, deformed, and R-worded babies as abnormal, as opposed to a normal baby who's not deformed with birth defects or disabled, or R-worded, like Claire Lehman called me. To put it even more succinctly, I'm sure this will be delicious, incest should be avoided because disabled babies will be born. Uh-huh. Yes. But this, you see, is going to be where the ableism comes in. See, because this is a prejudice against the idea of disabled babies. I'm not kidding. That society accepts this proposition because of such, quote, danger points to the ubiqui ubiquity of ableism. That society accepts this proposition. What was the proposition? Incest should be avoided because disabled babies will be born. That society accepts this proposition because of such, quote, danger. Danger is in quotes. It's not a real danger. It's a pretend danger. It's a fake danger. Why? Because disabled, deformed, birth defect, R-worded babies being born is not dangerous points to the ubiquity of ableism. Ableism is premised on the idea that the abled body is the normal, species-typical, natural, and better body, and one does not need to think too much about the ways in which disabled people are abjected to consider how hegemonic ableism is in society. Abjected, abject other. Hi, hermetic alchemy of Hegel. Good to see you. 
It's the driver of the dialectical process behind all of this. Ah, nice that you appeared here. Ableism, he says, can be understood as a form of normative violence, in that norms are violent to ways of being for particular people, disabled people in this instance, citing Judith Butler on violence of categorization or violence of normalcy. The idea that we're going to consider some things normal and other things not normal does violence by marginalizing and excluding and psychologically abusing or whatever people who are deemed abnormal. Being categorized into a man's body or a woman's body does a violence of categorization, or a straight person or a homosexual person does a violence of categorization if that person wishes to be queer outside of that. And thus we have to undo that violence by allowing trans, gender and sexual fluidity, etc. through queer analysis. And a lot of these things that you're seeing in the world are starting to make sense, but here now it's disabled people. Putting somebody, having somebody in a disabled body they've been flung into in the Martin Heidegger, Gay Warfenheit thrownness of being the Gnostic suffer, uh, mode of suffering uh, into a body that they didn't choose, whether that's a male body or a female body or a straight body or a gay body or a disabled body, is a form of normative violence to consider them that way and to create conditions that enforce considering them that way. This is their mindset. This is their religion, actually is that people are flung into a world that they didn't want to inhabit, they didn't ask for, but because they suffer in that world, they gain a glimpse of insight of what a better or absolutely perfect world might look like, and therefore should be given control of directing society, whereas other people who don't have that are um, privileged by the circumstances and therefore can't see it, and therefore should be removed from positions of power because they will only reproduce the oppressive conditions that benefit them. This is their religion. This is their faith. This is actually literally Gnosticism with, when I just mentioned, the Hegelian alchemy or hermetic program cobbled in or dialectically synthesized in properly. This is what it is. This is a faith. Given the ways in which society accepts and adheres to the incest taboo, I suggest that society is ableist. See, society is ableist because it it has a taboo on humping your mom. Not me humping your mom, but you humping your own mom. Or dad. Or brother or sister. Or whatever. Society is ableist because it has a taboo on incest. Don't hump your cousin. Society is ableist because it has a taboo on incest because it doesn't want disabled babies to be born. And that means it doesn't like disabled babies. And it holds up not disabled babies as preferable and species ideal, etc. Are you following the stupid logic? And this is the case because, he says, the prospect of, quote, producing disab disabledness, that's in italics, not quote, sorry. This is the case because the prospect of producing disabledness blocks someone's quest or desire for incest. This is some brain genius stuff right here. This is why I put this on Twitter with academia's having a normal one yet again. Much existing scholarship on the connection between incest and disability prefigures disability as negative. For example, Ansermet et al. 2010 framed the possibility as a, quote, risk for severe problems, and Kanan et al. 2008 suggest, quote, a general plan of action is required in response to the, quote, risk of incest. Quoting a public health program with a multi-approach strategy involving education 
sorry, I thought that hey was like a special thing instead of a word added in because it's in brackets. It's not a designator. Let me just reread that part. Quote, a public health program with a multi-approach strategy involving educating people, increasing awareness, and probably trying to push the government to take some measures should be executed to inform the public about the anticipated genetic consequences of consanguous marriages. That's incest. The existence of prenatal diagnosis and neonatal screening as useful means to deal with such issues in genetic counseling whenever necessary. And there's a footnote on consanguous. Oh, sorry, I didn't even say it right. Consanguineous. Damn it. It's consanguineous. Yes, consanguineous. Sorry. The term consanguineous or- originates from two Latin words, con meaning shared and sanguis meaning blood, thus describing relations between two people who share blood, that is a common ancestor. That means your cousins, or your mother, or your brother, or your sister, or your dad. Even the terms deployed to point to dis-slash-ableist beliefs and practices. Oh no, I have to say it. Quote, retardation. Canaan, 2008. Quote, malformations. Shockey and Sadik, 2011. Quote, defects. Caviani. 2016, quote, anomalies, Gaffar, 2014, quote, disorders, Safares, 2017, and so on. Even the terms deployed point to disablest beliefs, enablest beliefs and practices, retardation, malformations, defects, anomalies, disorders, and so on. These approaches constitute disability as negative, and by association forbids incest because of the prospect of disabledness. Remember, Banning incest is a form of latent eugenics, he said. Several other shortcomings can be identified when examining the prohibition of incest that is based on ableist grounds. Bell, Bergelson, Cahill, and others have all argued that the inbreeding argument is a flawed justification for prohibiting incest. The basis for this argument is that if if incest is wrong because of the risk of inbreeding, then society should not prohibit conduct where childbirth cannot occur. In other words, if you, say, had a vasectomy, you should be able to bone your mom or your sister. Bell explains from a legislative legalistic standpoint, quote, legislation based on such an objection to incest would logically have to disregard cases where there was no danger of conception, for example, because one or both parties was unable to conceive for medical reasons, for reasons of health or age, too young or too old. This limits the criminality of the act to specific groups, the fertile, in specific times during the fertile years, possibly even fertile days. It further limits the criminality to the consequences of the act, suggesting that if no pregnancy follows, the act itself was not wrong. It suggests that there is nothing intrinsically wrong with incestuous intercourse, but the possible consequences are such that it should be criminalized." Bergelson also adds to this picture by documenting in some jurisdictions the prohibition of incest also applies to marriage, where sexual relations are not a prerequisite, and sexual practices that cannot result in childbirth. Felicio and Cunnilingus, for example. So you can go down on your sister, don't worry, apparently. People are freaks. God. Oh, I'm being ableist. Or hetero-something. What is it if you're like incestophobic? Pretty incestophobic. Yeah, I am. Okay. It also stands that two unrelated individuals can engage in sexual relations and create, produce a disabled child. How, then, can we explain the justification that incest should be prohibited 
to prevent disabledness. See, sometimes disability happens anyway, so why should we prohibit incest, which has a far higher probability of producing disabledness? Why on the world should we do it? Oh, God. This is the same mistake you hear in all the queer things. Well, sometimes it happens the other way around. You can't prevent everything. Type 1, type 2 error problem. God, it's frustrating. Related and unrelated people can produce disabledness. This is where eugenics rears its head. That's what it says. It's what it says. The production of a disabled child by unrelated people is pitied, mourned, and labeled as an accident and a tragedy. In contrast, the production of a disabled child by related people, and particularly related disabled people, right, is understood as insidious pollution and contamination. <laughs> okay. Paste. <laughs> Just kidding. You're complaining about it. The production of disabledness by related people is an unfortunate blip, but the production of disabledness by related people is a dangerous outpouring that needs to be contained. Uh, again, you're complaining about it, but based otherwise. The prohibition of incest and its justifications is an ableist technology that works to minimize the number of disabled people in society. Hmm. Let me read that sentence again. The prohibition of incest and its justification is an ableist technology that works to minimize the number of disabled people in society. The effect of this prohibition is to maintain the eugenically based goal of maintaining a clean gene pool. See, not humping your sister is eugenics. In problematizing incest, it's worth considering what kind of knowledges emanate from this image of incest. That incest creates biological, quote, abnormalities. Still in quotes. They're not real. First, I mean, they're birth defects, but they're not real. First, it constructs incest as occurring between a man and a woman engaging in heterosexual sexual intercourse and who are closely related by blood in order for the, quote, abnormality to occur. Cahill, in 2005, writes that, quote, incest has been used to define a normative vision of sexuality in the family and to trigger disgust toward otherwise consensual intimate relationships. Apparently, if you're gay brothers, you can just go at it. This image of incest implies an abled couple because they are normative, fertile, and healthy, and dictates that they are not allowed to produce a disabled child. Imagine reading it that way. Imagine figuring out that that's what's really going on here. This is like where Christopher Hitchens said about the left. He said that the left new style, I can't quote it perfectly, is to find the worst possible motivation and interpretation of what's in front of you and take it as the only possible explanation. Perhaps paradoxically, that's the critical that's what critical theory is, by the way. That's just what critical theory is. Perhaps paradoxically, they will be con uh, constituted as disabled and or mad if they engage in incestuous desire and practice. And any resultant child will further be constituted as disabled and mad. The lot so you're hearing the Foucault there, right? Please tell me you heard the Foucault there. Mad. The social construction of madness. The logic of the incest taboo can then be understood as ableist and heteronormative in that it works to ensure that abled and heterosexual people stay in that position and be unable to produce any other disabled subjects through childbirth. The incest taboo works not only to forbid disability, but simultaneously and perhaps more potently to maintain the abled body. <sighs> I don't know how much drugs you have to do to come to this. Actually, the answer is zero. The answer is zero. 
The amount of drugs you have to do is you become a critical theorist, and then you think like this, because Marxism is a parasitic mind virus that rots your brain into this. Second, this image of incest constructs any child born from an incestuous relationship as a, quote, victim. Yes, actually, correct. To be interpolated as disabled and a victim from birth, quote, exacerbates exploitation and brings into question issues of slow death, social death, and necropolitics. The child is born doubly abjected if they somehow manage to avoid a diagnosis of disability through processes of medical interpolation that are presumed ontological and biological, but which is actually materialized through social resignification, see Butler 1990, that's gender trouble, the child will still be deemed disabled in another sense vis-a-vis processes of victimization. Now, did you follow what that just said? Okay, so here's the scene. You have boned to say your mom, and you've produced a baby with your mom, and this baby comes out, and people are going to say that baby was a victim of your incestuous crime, which is correct. But what's going to happen is the the child is now going to be born doubly objected. If they somehow manage to avoid a diagnosis of disability, okay, how? How do you avoid being disabled through this, I don't know, motherfucking process? Well, the through processes of medical interpolation, okay? So medicine comes in and prevents by doing genetic screening or genetic manipulation or, you know, whatever else, saves the day. Child comes out not disabled, right? Well, those they have to throw in a jab are presumed ontological and biological, but they're not really, they're not really biological. They're not really real. They are actually materialized through social resignification. See, this is the social process that made it so that that's okay, that that seems real, but it's not real. The medical thing merely changed the configuration in terms of how the child being born is going to be processed or perceived socially. That's going to then signify what the child is socially. That's going to then create the child through its social arrangement because they're social constructivists. Okay. So supposing that the medical science could come in, you know, like, so you humped your mom and you made a baby and medical science came in and prevented the baby from being disabled. That's where we are so far. And that was just really not even actual medicine or actual changes to anything biological or real. But in fact, it was a change to the circumstances that will create social signification of disabledness for your child. Now the child will still be deemed disabled in another sense. Because it's a victim of the fact that you humped your mother and did an incestuous crime. See? What I'm arguing here is that the category of victim is in many ways a disabled category, and vice versa. To be labeled a victim is to be disabled, and to be disabled is to be a victim. Hmm, that's some deep thoughts by uh, Jack Handy. This is the case because of the ways in which both subject positions are negatively verbalized. Or it's, no, sorry, vulnerabilized. It's not even a word. There's so many not words. Why is it the case that to be a victim is disabled and to be disabled is to be a victim? Because of the ways in which both victim and disabled are uh, negatively vulnerabilized and paternalized. Disability is popularly, popularly conceptualized as an inability to do things. That is, disabled. Yes, correct. And victims are often conceived as incapable, 
and unable to live their lives due to the violation and trauma they receive. Oh, that's extreme. To be clear, that's why we have to call them differently able to remember. To be clear, this conceptualization is not the problem of disabled slash victimized people, but more with the ways in which society treats such people. So the problem isn't their disability. It's the way people treat them because they're disabled. That's what I was already telling you before. Alcoff suggests that to be a victim is to lack dignity. But this is not... Is that what it says? Okay. But this is not a problem for the victimized and disabled people, but the ways in which non-victims constitute and treat victims and disabled people. To sum up, incest should not occur at risk of being interpolated as disabled. Thus far, I have problematized, in other words, bullshitized, one of the ablest foundations of the incest taboo that is anchored in biological so-called, quote, reasoning, that is the, quote, risk of producing disability, provides the foundation slash justification for the prohibition of incest. I have argued that this is a form of biological eugenics founded on ableist grounds. Now, you just said a bunch of stupid shit and came to that, like, asserted that conclusion, but nevertheless. In the following section, I turn to a broader issue, the idea that incest is a threat to the sanctity of the institution of the family. Yeah, correct. So again, the section's in the question marks. So let's do this again. Next section is, incest is a threat to the sanctity of the institution of the family. Or is it? Because it ends in that parentheses question mark. The incest taboo and its enforcement reinforce particular visions of the family. Hmm. Yeah, like that you don't. Never mind. And these visions are ableist in orientation. Oh, of course they are. Cahill argues that incest, quote, continues to signify any non-normative arrangement that poses a serious risk to our traditional understandings of the family. I just want to stop for a second with this. I'm not really interested in Cahill's nonsense quote, that incest continues to signify any non-normative arrangement that poses a serious risk to our traditional understandings of the family. How about that? I want to pause and put the, something I should have mentioned before that just occurred to me, that Cahill wrote this paper defending incest in 2005, so it's not exactly new. We'll let the 17 years of that sink in for you. In the context of gender and sexuality, Butler, 2000, suggests that same-sex relationships and incest represent departures from the norm. So Judith Butler, fairy godmother of queer theory, suggests in her concept of gender and sexuality that same-sex relationships and incest represent departures from the norm, and that such, depart- that such deviations twist the prototypical ways in which sexual identity is created and maintained within the family structure. See, family structure is supposed to work a certain way, and it's going to groom people into believing that relationships in men and women and sexuality all work a certain way. And when you do things like same-sex relationships or incest, you twist those the, the prototype of mom and dad with children that are not sexually active with one another except mom and dad, right? And so that twists up the nuclear family structure. Butler argues, quote, The law would secure the incest taboo as the foundation of symbolic family structure. Sorry, I left out a word. I dropped my voice and started laughing because I was trying to give Judith Butler a deeper voice. 
The law that would secure the incest taboo as the foundation of symbolic family structure states the universality of the incest taboo as well as its necessary symbolic consequences. One of the symbolic consequences of the law so formulated is precisely the derealization of lesbian and gay forms of parenting, single mother households, blended family arrangements in which there may be more than one mother or father, where the symbolic position is itself dispersed and rearticulated in new social formations. So the the law that would she's talking about a specific law that would secure the incest taboo as a foundation of symbolic family structure states that the universality of the incest taboo as well as its necessary symbolic consequences and one of those is that you can't be gay or you can't be poly or you can't have all this other stuff. Okay. Butler suggests that incest is scapegoated as a problem to protect the sanctity of the nuclear family structure. Or in Cahill's interpretation, quote, incest is a way of describing what is troubling about those new formations. The incest taboo functions to preserve a particular kind of normative family unit, unit, which of course they would want to destroy. They of course want to destroy the normative family unit. Elsewhere, so they're going to problematize and queer and apparently crip it by saying it's ableist to want to do this. Elsewhere, Butler writes, quote, Consider that the horror of incest, the moral revulsion it compels in some, 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 not her, some, maybe not her, is not that far afield from the same horror and revulsion felt toward lesbian and gay sex. Because, you see, Judith Butler, as an angry lesbian, is Gaywarfenheit, flung, thrown. Well, it's Gaywarfen. Gaywarfenheit is flungness or thrownness, having been flung having been thrown, the feeling, the experience of having, the lived experience of having been flung into a world you didn't ask for, or maybe a body, or maybe a sexuality. And her Gaywarfin experience, or Gaywarfin experience, is in being a butch lesbian. So she was flung into this situation of being a butch lesbian that society doesn't accept. So everything has to filter back through her Gnostic lens of flungness because they're freaking Gnostics. But anyway... The horror of incest is now going to be understood as the same horror felt toward lesbian and gay sex. And it is not unrelated, she says, to the intense moral condemnation of voluntary single parenting or gay parenting or parenting arrangements with more than two adults involved. Practices that can be used as evidence to support a claim to remove a child from the custody of the parent in several states in the United States. These various modes in which the Oedipal mandate it's Oedipus complex. That's Freud. That's I don't want to have sex with my mother. It's that everybody wants to have sex with their mother. These various modes in which the Oedipal mandate fails to produce normative family all risk entering into the metonymy of that of moral of that moralized sexual horror that is perhaps most fundamentally associated with incest. So her argument is, believe it or not, that there are lots of different ways you could construe family. You could have an incestuous family. You could have a gay family. You could have a poly family. You could have gay parents. You could have single parents. Lots of things. You have lots of possibilities, and there's these taboos against all of them, and they're all kind of basically the same taboo. And its most fundamental form is incest. And obviously, some of those are more ridiculous than others, so maybe they're all ridiculous. That's the queering aspect, thanks to Judith Butler. Incest, then, we're back to Ryan 
Thornycroft. Incest, then, is used as a substitute to all forms of non-normative practices and relations. Cahill suggests that incest, quote, stands for the transgression of certain major cultural values, the value of a particular pattern of relations among persons. Yes, it does. Incest, then, is not simply used to forbid genetic, quote, abnormal inheritance, that is, disability, although it is to a large degree, but to reinforce particular types of normative social relations and practices. See, it's not just to prevent disabled babies from being born that are deformed or disabled or birth defects or R-worded. It's not just that. It's also to maintain normal, stable families. So incest, taboo, reinforces the idea that families should be a certain way and not other ways. And that's what Judith Butler's getting dragged into this for. Although Judith Butler, by bringing up incest, dragged herself into it. While I agree with the central tenets of this argument, I would crip, remember that means disabled queer, I would crip the above explanation and suggest that the characterological figures presented in this account is of an able body. While non-normative sexuality and gender subjects are the topic of Butler's inquiry, I suggest that before this, these subjects are prefigured disabled. Okay, remember a minute ago where I said Judith Butler was gay orphan, sorry I did it wrong again, gay orphan, into a butch lesbian body, and so that's her Gnostic prison, and that's the thing she has to see everything through, because that's her Gnostic insight that comes with the suffering of having been flung into a world she didn't ask for, because it's all a Gnostic religion. Ryan Thornycroft was gay orphan, in, gay orphan into a disabled body, and so his whole lens is abled. So he's going to now challenge Butler's queer interpretation of incest into an able-bodied version of interpretation of incest. That's what he's saying. While uh, I agree with the central tenets of this argument, I would crip it and suggest that the characterological figures presented in this account is of an abled body. So the abled body, not the queer body, becomes the more important, or the, sorry, straight body is the more important thing. While non-normative sexuality and gender subjects are the topic of Butler's Gnostic inquiry, it doesn't say Gnostic, but we know what's going on here, I suggest that before this, these subjects are prefigured as abled. See, even if you talk about queers, Judith Butler didn't do it right because she didn't talk about the fact that when we think of gay people, we still think of people who have both of their legs. Samuels, in 2002, suggests that the, quote, texts and characters Butler chooses to analyze are consistently discussed in terms of their sexed, gendered, and racial formations, not their physical or mental abilities. See, Judith Butler really screwed up because she didn't talk about two R-words having incestuous sex with one another and producing a inbred offspring. Judith Butler missed a huge opportunity. In fact, she's ableist. That's the problematization that's happening here with Butler's analysis. I'm not kidding. Moreover, Butler's work, quote, is enabled. That's with a hyphen because it's like, haha, cool by its own reliance upon a stable, functional body that is able to walk, talk, give birth, see, and be seen. Mm -hmm. See, Judith Butler is actually ableist because she didn't crip her own ideas about incest. Just as Butler, 1993, so that's Bodies That Matter, acknowledges that scholars, quote, forget that the, that's in quotes, quote, the body comes in genders, so too does it come with dis slash abilities. To be clear, it is not my intention to criticize Butler for omitting disability from her work, because you can't criticize the queen. You are, in fact, criticizing the queen, though. 
Butler, in Bodies That Matter, observes, any analysis which foregrounds one vector of power over another will doubtless become vulnerable to criticisms that it not only ignores or devalues the others, but that its own constructions depend upon the exclusion of the others in order to proceed. On the other hand, any analysis which pretends to be able to encompass every vector of power runs the risk of a certain epistemological imperialism, which consists in the presupposition that any given writer might fully stand for and explain the complexities of contemporary power. Now remember, contemporary power means which Gnostic prison have you been stuck in? Were you stuck in the race prison? Were you stuck in the queer prison? Were you stuck in the disabled prison? Which Gnostic prison were you stuck in? Were you stuck in the poor prison? Whoops, nobody cares about you anymore. Which Gnostic prison were you stuck in? And intersectionality is all the prison inmates in the big Gnostic prison saying, wait, we're all in prison, and let's all try to figure out how to kind of argue with each other, but to drag each other into realizing we're all in prison if we get rid of all the prisons in the world, if we get rid of the imprisoning itself, then everything would be fine. And again, I urge you to go read the third chapter of the book of Genesis, which tells this story involving a snake. Same story. No author or text says Ryan Thornydyke, or whatever his name is, should or could dictate the power structures existent in the social and cultural world, citing Butler and Bodies That Matter again. Instead, see, it's too complicated. There's all these different ones. You couldn't possibly get it right. So every different person is going to foreground the Gnostic experience they get from having been Geworfenheit into their particular Gnostic prison in the form of their body, or in a world filled with the social relations that impose themselves upon that body. All these things from all these papers say the same thing. They say, I'm a Gnostic. I'm in Gnostic prison. I get to have the jailbreak by giving me control of the prison. The inmates need to run the asylum, and then we'll have a liberated society. Inmates running the asylum, if we go back to Foucault, is literally the prescription of liberation. Instead, he says, I am simply suggesting that the explanation proffered by Butler prefigures an abled body, ableist, and as such, I would add to her account, because you don't dare slap down the queen, add to her account and suggest that the incest taboo works to reinstate an abled and normative cisgender heterosexual family structure. So he's just adding depth. The prohibition of incest is used to not only enforce heteronormative family structures, but also to police the boundaries of abledness and to ensure that it is preserved. And when I said heteronormative, by the way, hetero is in parentheses because normative is the key part because it's queer slash crip theory. A similar argument can also be made in relation to Butler's 1990 discussion. So this is now um, gender trouble of the incest taboo and its ableist origins. While Butler focuses on the incest taboo and its relationship to the heterosexual matrix, which she later calls, quote, heterosexual hegemony, and can also be understood as a form of compulsory heterosexuality, Adrian Rich is who came up with that, C. Rich, 1980. So Adrian Rich coined compulsory heterosexuality. I suggest that abledness is also factors uh, sorry, I suggest that abledness also factors in this discussion. Butler, in Gender Trouble, argues that, quote, that the, quote, resolution of the Oedipal complex affects gender identification through not only the incest taboo, but prior to that, the taboo against homosexuality. So she's dealing with homosexuality 
and heterosexuality and gender trouble and how it produces gendered lives and bodies, etc. She's doing it in a Freudian way with the Oedipus complex, which is the, as the cartoon shows with Freud, it's not that I want to have sex with my mother, it's that everybody wants to have sex with their mother thing. And the resolution of this complex that people intrinsically have a sexual attraction to their mother, if it were their father as a girl or maybe gay or something, it would be the Electra complex, which is the same, but with the sexes reversed. The resolution of this complex affects gender identification through not only the incest taboo, so the incest taboo that you don't have sex with your parents at the heart of the Oedipus complex, affects gender identification. But prior to that, the taboo against homosexuality, says Butler. Succinctly, Butler, in Gender Trouble, argues that the taboo against incest is preceded by the taboo against homosexuality, yet strikingly offers no evidence other than the claim that, quote, it would appear. At this juncture, I am not that interested in what comes first, the incest taboo or the prohibition of homosexuality, but I would say that abledness is interwoven with both. McRuer from 2002 writes, quote, the system of compulsory, compulsory able-bodiedness that produces disability is thoroughly interwoven with the system of compulsory heterosexuality that produces queerness. That, in fact, compulsory heterosexuality is contingent on the compulsory able-bodiedness and vice versa, end quote. Compulsory abledness is intertwined with compulsory heterosexuality. They are norms that are performatively embodied and enacted. See, you're required to perform as able-bodied to the maximum degree possible, compulsory abledness. You're required or compelled to perform as though you're heterosexual to pass, to not be a butch lesbian, a bar dyke, or whatever else. You have to perform heterosexuality. They are norms that are performatively embodied and enacted, and that's what actually creates them. And for Butler, that's what creates gender in the first place. You're performing and enacting heterosexual modes that create gender. You look, you are a woman who looks like a woman because you're creating gender in the model of what a heterosexual woman should look like. And you're a man who acts and looks manly or masculine because you're creating masculinity in the context of what a heterosexual re- relationship looks like. So for Judith Butler, it's the idea that men and women are going to hump each other, analyzes a social phenomenon and not a biological one that creates the compulsion for men and women to have gender roles or sex roles that are masculine and feminine, and by everybody playing along with this performance, we create a compulsion in society that requires people or a social, um, socially enforced mechanism that requires men to be men and women to be women. That's the production of gender, according to Judith Butler. That's the queer. Th- that's where gender comes from, according to Judith Butler. It's not biological. It's reinterpreting the biological in terms of the social. And now the same thing is saying, actually, compulsory, compulsory abledness is intertwined with it because you have to be, you, you assume able-bodiedness too. You're not picturing two gay people without legs going at it. You're just not, apparently. If we can accept that abled bodies are constituted through the prohibition of incest, then the taboo against disability sits alongside the taboo against homosexuality. It is not then surprising, see, because incest would break down the idea, 
So if we can accept that abled bodies are constituted through the prohibition of incest, remember that's because you make disabled babies if you have incestuous sex and it produces an offspring. And so abled bodies are constituted through the prohibition of incest. Then he says that the, the taboo against disability sits alongside the taboo against homosexuality. Because the same thing, the same argument works because incest in the family would break down something about the idea of heterosexual relationships as they're supposed to be, and the performance of gender and family roles, etc., that Butler argued. It is not then surprising, he says, to recognize the ways in which disabled people are understood as queer, just as queer people are understood as disabled. Say that trick again. Just think of the ways in which disabled people are desexualized, asexualized, and or hypersexualized. I just did that when I said you don't think of two gay people without legs going at it. Ah, I'm so guilty. And or hypersexualized, and the ways in which queer people are constituted as disabled through medicalization, sickness, and psychiatry. To crip Butler's, again from gender trouble, phrasing then, quote, it would appear that, so we're cripping her, which we're going to change her words, we're going to, to crip Butler's phrasing then, quote, it would appear that the taboo against homosexuality, bracket, and disabledness must precede the heterosexual, bracket, and abled, ableist incest taboo, end quote. One need only consider the ways in which the incest taboo is justified by the, quote, threat of disability, as discussed in the previous section, to understand how accurate this representation is. So, what Ryan McThornydyke, or whatever his name is, is doing here is saying, here's this terrible argument that makes no freaking sense and is Gnostic from Judith Butler, and it turns out that if you just cram the words abled and disabled in there, it works for this too. Now we've crypt it, and so since it works so well, obviously, and Judith Butler was very plainly obviously correct, even though it's a terrible idea and terrible argument that's totally bogus, we're equally correct and terribly wrong and bogus. That's the breakdown for you. The incest taboo, he says, sits alongside a whole range of technologies that work to produce and regulate abled and heteronormative family structures and relationships. Disabled people are often asexualized, desexualized, and or hypersexualized. Let's just say the same thing again. The first two terms, asexualization and desexualization, aligns with, that's a grammatical error, uh, aligns with the goals of a heteronormative and ableist public. But the last term, hypersexualization, is something that must be contained and indeed addressed, quote, properly, to produce the first two terms and attendant heteronormativity and ableism. I'm really curious what the guy's thinking about in terms of disabled people being hypersexual. Like, I don't know if this is like midget porn or something. I'm not, whoops, you're not supposed to say that. Oh, God. I can't believe I said that. I don't know what he's talking about. Anyway, I have no idea what he's talking about. Um... Disabled people are often excluded from sexual education. Their, quote, inappropriate behavior is heavily monitored. Sexual health facilities are often unwelcoming, unwelcoming or inaccessible, and many hold up the belief that sexual practices among disabled people is disgusting. As Mallow, uh, Mallow and McCrure comment, sex and disability is understood, quote, if not antithetical in the popular imagination, then certainly incongruous, end quote. Many disabled people, much like queer and racial minorities, are also subjected to the idea that they should not or cannot contribute to the growth of human population, again, a form of eugenics. Claire notes how disabled people are constituted as, quote, genderless asexual undesirables, end quote, uh, 
and many disabled couples are also encouraged to avoid sexual practices and most certainly not to have children. I don't think that that applies to people in wheelchairs, but it might apply to people who have certain other disabilities for reasons that have everything to do with genes. But at any rate, the incest taboo is just another technology within the ableist toolbox that works to negate and disavow crip families. Crip families instead of normal families, which we're breaking down, remember. What does cripping incest do? The question mark here is not in parentheses. What kind of political endeavor has been engaged in this exposition? Looks like bullshit. Communist bullshit, frankly. What does cripping existing incest scholarship actually do? Uh, something seriously degenerate. At this particular moment, I am not that interested in the ethico-political dimensions of my analysis than in theoretical contribution. In other words, I don't care what effects it has, I just want to write some crap down. This means I am not that interested in whether subjects start to engage in incestuous practices, but rather I am more interested in contextualizing ableness, ableism, and incest discourses for the purposes of unraveling and decomposing these very systems. Oh, you're an intellectual narcissist. You don't care what actually happens, you just want to write things and look smart. And you want to scream from your Gnostic prison. Gotcha. My contribution can be contextualized as an active process of taking unquestioned and taken for granted, that is, ableist, ideas, practices, and relations, and making them unfamiliar and strange to explore alternative and com uh, combative ways of, ways of living, being, and doing. What does that combative mean? means combative to the existing norms. He wants to destroy those, right? So his contribution, he doesn't care what happens with it. He doesn't care about the ethics or the politics like he said he would get to. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care if people actually start having incestuous sex because he broke down these norms. It should just be contextualized as a theoretical thing, as an active process of taking unquestioned and taken for granted ideas, practices, and relations that are ableist and making them unfamiliar and strange so that we can do war against the normal because we're queer theorists, which is to say queer Marxists. I have opened up an intellectual space that rethinks dominant, dominant discursive constructions that otherwise negate abledness and ableism, yet I have, in italics, worked them into the topic to expose their absent presence. See, you don't normally, when you think about incest stuff, you don't normally think about disabled incest stuff, so they're absent, so he's worked them in to expose just how it's really the central thing from the view from the window in his Gnostic prison. Much like other forms of post-structuralist disability studies, I and disability has a slash in it between dis and ability, I have attempted to move disability slash crip beyond the influence of medical and reductive discourses, and in so doing, move beyond the, quote, material disorder of the, quote, biological disabled body. See, it's social, it's not biological. This type of methodological engagement has not been easy. Gnostic bullshit is really easy, actually, unless you're mediocre and stupid, but okay. As a crypt theorist, I have been compelled to find a way of reading texts slash dis discourses for what it refuses to include. See Luce Irigaray, 1985. It's a postmodern feminist. Butler, in 
Bodies That Matter, highlights how difficult this is. Quote, For how can one read a text for what, it, what does not appear within its own terms, but which nevertheless constitutes the illegible conditions of its own legibility? Don't you love Judith Butler? It would take like weeks to go through a chapter in podcast form of, of any of her books because she writes things like that. So the first part is easy. For how can my job so hard? For how can one read a text for what does not appear within its own terms? For what's hidden? But which nevertheless constitutes the illegible, not written down, conditions of its own legibility, the way that we have to understand it. Yeah. Seeking to expose ableism within incest discourses highlights the invisible character and power that ableism possesses. See, we don't even think about it. It's just power bearing down on you. Don't even bother thinking about it because you are so caught up in your ideological normative view of the world like a freaking bourgeois person in a Marxist society that has bourgeois values that you can't even analyze and understand because you don't live in our Gnostic prison where we make all this crap up. It's so invisible that we have to tell you about it because we have the ins necessary insight as the Gnostics who got there by suffering, by being in our Gnostic prison. Ableism is a form of normative violence. That's where, the, why, where victimhood culture comes from, by the way. That's all it is. Victimhood culture is not a real culture. Victimhood culture is Gnosticism. Ableism is a form of normative violence that makes abledness compulsory and leads to the abjection of disabled bodies. To quote Crip Incest is not to suggest that we should all start engaging in incestuous practices, in parentheses, but that wouldn't bother me. To Crip Incest is not to suggest that we should all start engaging in incestuous practices, but that wouldn't bother me. Rather, it is to illustrate the myriad ways in which ableism seeps into so many discourses and practices without us even overtly recognizing it. See, it wouldn't bother me. I'm so high and open-minded and, and woke and inclusive. If everybody wants to start boning their moms and sisters and dads and brothers, like, I'm down. I'm cool. I, it wouldn't bother me. Doesn't. It's not important to me. That's not. No, I want to scream about my Gnostic prison of ableism. It's also a form of symbolic violence, citing Pierre Bourdieu from 1991, the French radical left sociologist, a violence that creates material effects without us recognizing it. Part of Crip and Cripping is about exposing ableism, just as queer theory works to expose and subvert heteronormativity, and indeed, Butler does this in her problematization of incest. The post this post-conventional approach is also a deliberate exercise of refusing totalizing accounts and answers. No, it's actually creating a thought reform in psychology of totalism. It's actually creating a totalizing account that you are going to dictate what is and isn't at any given moment. You, the Gnostics. Iron Log woke, woke projection never misses. The post this post-conventional sounds so high-tech. just means wrong approach is also a deliberate exercise of refusing to totalizing accounts and answers and of yielding to the necessary or to the necessity of disturbing our ways of thinking being and doing citing again Judith Butler this time from bodies that matter yet as much as i would like to remain focused on the theoretical propositions raised in my analysis 
it is perhaps worth considering the ethico-political dimensions of these arguments. See, I don't care. I'm above the ethics, politics. Everybody wants to go have incest, sex, I don't care. It wouldn't bother me. But maybe we should bother considering them. Certain consequences, he says, flow from cripping incest and the suggestion that the prohibition of incest is ableist, particularly when we understand the ethically injurious nature of ableism. Engaging in this dialogue would avoid empty theorizing and instead open, quote, material effects for embodied subjects. But what are those material effects? Scholars have begun to trace the contours between crip and queer theory in the aim of forging alliances between these two abjected groups. To that end, an engagement with the social and antisocial turns in queer theory might provide one avenue to think about the material effects of cripping incest discourses and crip futures. Crip futures, meaning future life as a cripple, taken as a positive discourse of resistance and anchor of subjectivity. Rather than get bogged down in a discussion about the possibility of future incestuous practices and material effects of it, we could instead follow Edelman's 2004 approach of fucking the future. Okay, so maybe we should consider the material stuff. Maybe we should talk about the ethics and the politics. Maybe we should, but maybe actually let's not. Let's just not get bogged down in that. Let's talk instead about fucking the future. Edelman, 2004, suggests that any conception of the future is intertwined with the figure of, quote, the child, child is capitalized, and as such, they are, quote, the telos of the social order, the purpose, the, the directed purpose of the social order. Edelman argues that the figure of the child is mobilized to bolster heteronormativity and that queer people are produced by society as a grave threat to the reproductive futurism and the child. Mm, this is going to get groomy weird. The proponents and opponents of marriage equality, for example, both mobilized, quote, our children's future as their key matter of concern. According to such, quote, logic, marriage equality is not about equality or justice or desire or agency, but rather about the future of our children. Edelman suggests that, quote, queerness names the side of those not fighting for the children. The side outside of the consensus by which all politics confirms the absolute value of reproductive futurism, end quote. See, queerness is the part that doesn't care about the future. It only cares about us right now. It only cares about our own narcissistic life. What then is Edelman's response to this social constitution? He writes, and I quote, fuck the social order and the child in whose name we're collectively terrorized. Fuck Annie. Fuck the way from Les Mis. Fuck the poor innocent kid on the net. Fuck laws with both capital L's and with small. Fuck the whole network of symbolic relations in the future that serves as its prop. Now remember, we're fucking the future because we didn't want to engage in the ethical and political implications of opening up incest. Now that we've finished that quote. For Edelman, a focus on reproductive futurity, in other words, the idea that we would continue to make babies, singularly forecloses all other possibilities and forms of social arrangement, you know, like narcissistic supply. A focus on reproductive futurity positions queer people and queerness as a threat to the social order, and as such, there can be no future for queers. That's exactly the opposite of what you expected us to go along with when 
pride and equality were put. It's like, let us just live our lives. Let us be who we are. We're not going to screw up. We're not going to do this stuff with kids. We're not going to be weirdos. We just want to live our lives and enjoy our lives. But now you let there be a future for us. We don't know why we're here as queers, but we are. And let us be. That's a future for queers and uh, acceptance in the future social order and not being beat down, which I think most people agree with today um, because it is a civil rights issue. But no, that's not it. There's, there's, if we don't think about it all in terms of reproduction, there's no future for queers. There's no room for us. There's going to genocide us all. So fuck the future. Literally fuck the future. Literally fuck the future. People want to have incest? That doesn't bother me. Fuck the future. I don't really want to get bogged down, he said. I don't really want to get bogged down in the ethical and political consequences of, you know, opening up the door to incest by saying it's ableist and eugenics not to have incest. I don't really want to get bogged down with it. Fuck the future. Fuck it. Fuck it. It's not good for... Fuck it. We don't have queers in the future. Fuck the future. Fuck it. And fuck these people. Fuck them all away. Like, I don't care what you fucking want anymore. You want to say the word fuck a few more times? Fuck you, you fucking fuckers. I don't fucking care what you fucking want. You fucking blew it. How's that? Edelman's 2004 account can also be used to illustrate the bolstering of abled heteronormativity. Kaffer, 2013, writes, quote, Any future that includes disability can only be a future to avoid. A better future, in other words, is one that excludes disability and disabled bodies. Indeed, it is the very absence of disability that signals this better future. The presence of disability then signals something else, a future that bears too many traces of the ills of the present to be desirable. In this framework, a future with dis disability is a future no one wants. In the future of, of the disabled person, especially the disabled fetus or child, becomes the symbol of this undesired future. Now, this is a total crackpot reading, and I don't know exactly why Kaffer's writing this. I don't know the context. I haven't gone and looked up that other paper. But this is kind of tapping into that genocide thing that I was saying. If we imagine, which might be true, that what they're actually talking about, since they bring up the disabled fetus, that we can do medical interventions to minimize or actually cure or prevent all disability, then you can wail about this in terms of a genocide. A future that includes disability can only be a future to avoid. Now imagine that what the context of this paper is, which it probably is, if I had to guess, given what's going on here, but certainly other arguments of this kind exist. Imagine that the context of this paper is in fact that we can cure disability with medical technology. A future that includes disability can only be a future to avoid. A better future, in other words, is one that excludes disability and disabled bodies. You mean cures them. So nobody has to deal with that. Indeed, it is the very absence of disability that signals this better future because progress in medical technology succeeded, maybe. The presence of disability then signals something else, a future that bears too many traces of the ills of the present to be desirable. No, because we want a better future, right? But it would be worse because we got rid of all the disabled people. In this framework, a future with disability is a future no one wants. And the figure of the disabled person, especially the disabled fetus or child, becomes a symbol of this undesired future. Now, if you think of it in terms of what I said, you're like, oh my God, these people are crazy. But if you think of it the way that it's been clipped here by Ryan Thornydyke or whatever his name is, if you think of it in the terms the way that it's clipped here, it's like, oh my God, they hate disabled people. And this is the typical little game that they play from within their Gnostic wailing and gnashing of teeth prison that they think they live in. Incest also works here as a perfect example, Ryan tells us. 
Incestuous practice is understood as a threat to the future, and as such, the prohibition of incest makes abledness and heterosexuality, according to Butler, 1990, and Rubin, 1975, I assume this is uh, Gail Rubin, compulsory. Quote, sites of reproductive futurity demand a child that both resembles the parents and exceeds them. Quote, we all want, quote, our children to be more healthy, more active, stronger and smarter than we are, and we are supposed to do everything in our power to make that happen. The child through whom legacies are passed down without doubt is able-bodied and able-minded. End quote. Futurity is violent and dangerous to quip to crip and queer bodies, concludes Thornydyke, or whatever his name is. As such, saying, fuck the future, can appear as the only viable crip-slash-queer response. Yet as I can contemplate fucking the future, there's a sense in which such a position feels too dystopic. Munoz, again, remember, Munoz is upon whose work the pedagogy of drag queen story hour is based, Munoz's work provides the necessary rejoinder to Edelman, and while he focuses on queer, I think his comments can also be tied to Crip specifically. Munoz's futurity project, Munoz's, he doesn't put the S because it ends in a Z, Munoz's futurity project is clearly more utopian. He writes, quote, queerness, and this was in the other paper, right? This was in the Groomer Schools for Drag Queen Story Hour paper. Queerness is not here yet. Queerness is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. We have never been queer, yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. The future is queerness's domain. End quote. The future is queer. Fuck the future. If queerness is not yet here writes Thornycroft, and to which it is something we have to look forward to, and surely the best is yet to come. According to Munoz, we have only seen partial snippets of queerness's radical and transformative power. Munoz challenges us to hold out hope for a queer future, and if that is to be so, then we need not to be so troubled by the prospects of crip and incest. Let me pause before we go on and point out what you've just seen between these two perspectives. Edelman's Fuck the Future, that's straight-up Gnosticism and vulnerable narcissism, because it's very pessimistic in its pure form. So we're seeing that strain-dominant, because what we're actually dealing with through all of Marxism, and actually Hegel before that, is a dialectical fusion of Gnosticism and hermetic alchemy. Munoz is offering a more hermetic solution, a more alchemical, transformational solution, a utopian solution that brings hope back into the picture by transforming the world into what we want it to be. So you're seeing the fight between the Gnostic wailing and gnashing of teeth, hell aspect of this, and the more hermetic alchemy Hegel aspect of Munoz. That's what we're actually watching in this little battle that Thornycroft, who can't figure out why you shouldn't fuck your sister, is trying to work out for us. This is the case because different futures and different ways of living, being, and doing will all avail themselves. This is his summary of Munoz in his utopianism about queerness and the future being queer. Remember, too, that large portions of our lives are dictated by a naturalized form of straight-slash-heteronormative time. Queer and crypt time will open up more temporospatialities, avenues, possibilities, and futures. So when we start queering time, you see there will be more 
different interpretations of the future. Incestuous practices might also not be understood as that unusual or unnatural once we put into context how people choose and unchoose disabledness every day. In the context of unchoosing, Claire, 2017, writes, quote, Collectively, in the white Western world, we go to such lengths to unchoose disability. We wear seatbelts. We don't dive into shallow water. We vaccinate against polio and measles. Certainly, these actions are about avoiding death, but our avoidance quickly mashes into the unchoosing of disability. See, we don't, we don't do stupid shit because we don't want to end up disabled, and that's apparently a problem. We're unchoosing disability because we don't like disabled. We would rather be able-bodied than disabled, so we don't do things like, I don't know, jump off the fucking roof. These people are mentally ill. There's no other way to put it. These people are literally mentally ill, and the mental illness that they have is social constructivism which is a kind of Gnostic mental parasite that ruins your ability to understand the world you live in to the point where you can't function in it. And then in response, you demand everybody else change in order to accommodate the fact that you can't function in the world because you have a brain parasite that doesn't work, makes you so you can't function in the world, so you don't work. The prohibition of incest, back to Thornycroft, is another example, presuming for a moment we are imagining heterosexually abled subjects. The prohib- prohibition of incest is another example of unchoosing disability, right? Because we choose not to do incest. We choose not to hump our mom or our dad so that we don't produce disabled babies. So we're unchoosing disability by not having incest, right? You following it? Aligning with our neoliberal individualist selves. Humans are invested in choosing how, when, where, and if disabledness presents in our lives. We don't dive into the shallow end. We don't have sex with our mothers. You know, we unchoose disabledness. And there are certainly moments when such decisions are made. A prospective adoptive parent might request a disabled child. Pregnant people may keep their fetus despite the, quote, risk prediction of Down syndrome. And indeed, many pregnant people choose not to get such tests at all. Deaf people using, quote, artificial insemination for pregnancy may request a deaf sperm donor, and transabled people have a desire to become disabled. If you don't know about the transabled phenomenon, these are people who decide they want to be disabled, so they get blinded or made deaf or have an arm cut off or something like this. Then they become transabled. They intentionally disable themselves, and medical professionals facilitate this. Of course, most of the actual surgical and hormone processes in becoming transgendered or sexual, really, also make you transabled. They disable your body. They disable your reproductive capacity. They uh, disable your urogenital system. It's all kind of the same. This is clearly the product of mental illness, not something doctors should be encouraging and not something that schools and society should be affirming. These people need treatment, and it's not the treatment that the surgeon is giving them. Suddenly, incestuous practices don't seem that unusual at all, he concludes after all that. Yes, they do, dude. Yes, they freaking do. Claire writes that, quote, how the world treats people who in some fashion choose disability reveals so much. Choosing disabledness, back to Thornydike or Croft, Choosing disabledness results in reactions of disgust, shock, horror, and disbelief, attitudes of hatred and irresponsibility, and practices of stigma, marginalization, and violence. Yeah, disabling yourself is really not a sign of mental health, and you should be treated for your underlying mental health condition through responsible means. My God, 
The incest taboo is an example of a strategy that works to ensure the unchoosing of disabledness. Even further, the power of the incest taboo suggests that choosing and unchoosing are not even options. There is no choice at all when it comes to incest, because it's taboo. You aren't given the choice, right? Conversely, unchoosing is, quote, celebrated and framed as a collective imperative. That's quoting Claire from 2017 again. The unchoosing of disabledness in whatever form it takes is part of a politics that works to create and perpetuate monocultures of abledness. Monocultures of abledness. We cannot select which examples of choosing and unchoosing dis-slash-abledness we should fight for. Rather, we must fight against the creation of monocultures in all their forms and guises. Make room for our weirdo. Reflections and Possibilities For those invested in crypt theory and politics, remember he never talked about the ethics or the politics at all, did he? No, he didn't. For those invested in crypt theory and politics, we must remember that we are invested in conceptualizing a more efficacious account of disability and crip. Apparently, disabled people fuck their mothers. Disabled bodies and lives are not less than, they are not reductively sick or weak or broken or deformed or crazy or vulnerable or any other pathologized term, word, or account. As Goodley et al., 2019, assert, Disability is, quote, not a flaw, an individual tragedy, nor a a whispered recognition of another's embodied failing, or a shameful family truth, end quote. Disabled bodies, like all bodies, are changeable, unruly, revisable, and imperfect. And that is brilliant slash fabulous slash crip. Claire, 2017. And we must Always remember that it is not disabled people that have problems, although many of us do, given our human condition, but rather ableist society that fucks over disabled people. That's what it says, overs in parentheses, but rather ableist society that fucks and fucks over disabled people. That's what he says. I am in my Gnostic prison. Woe is me. Gay orphanheit. Ah. Ableism compounds injustice and oppression, and as Davis argues in 2006, the gaze must be switched to consider the ways in which, quote, normalcy is constructed to create the, quote, problem of the disabled person, end quote. In this context, then, the prospect of creating or producing disabledness is not a bad thing. In this context, the prospect of creating or producing disabledness is not a bad thing because we've overcome the idea of normalcy and are overcoming it by producing disabledness. We are challenging the ways that normalcy is constructed to create the problem of the disabled person, and therefore in this context, the prospect of creating or producing disabledness is not a bad thing. Whether through incest or the rejection of prenatal testing, for example, producing disability holds out hope for a crip future. This is the most R-worded thing I've ever read in my life. Disability, according to Goodley et al., quote, is a place of oppression but also possibility, end quote. If disabled bodies are not broken or sick or injured or problematic, then it does not matter if incestuous practices eventuate. Hmm, okay. Goodley et al. want to hump their mothers. They should really turn off the stepsister porn and get a life. Back to Kafer or whatever, 
tells us that the, quote, futures we imagine reveal the biases of the present. Imagining incest or imagining a world without the incest taboo reveals the biases of today that prohibit its enactment, but the disciplinary norms of today cannot continue into the future. Goodly writes, quote, perhaps now is the time for all of us to move out of our normative shadows and embrace our inherent potential to be non-normative. Perhaps now is time for a politics of abnormality, end quote. A politics of abnormality must entail the rejection of monocultures and all that that entails. A monoculture can only exist through damage, damaging all that is, quote, other to, prefer, to preserve sameness. Sameness is violence. It is evidence of violence against the, quote, other. There's your Gnostic Hermeticism, by the way. This essay has charted... So how does that work? How does Gnostic Hermeticism... See, in the Hermetic religious mystery religion belief, the idea is that the divine is trapped within the mundane. The, the world was created by God splintering itself into an infinite number of shards that fill every aspect of being. So God is actually imminent. God is everywhere. God is present in everything, but it's trapped within a mundane mortal coil. The Gnostic idea is that imprisoned divine shard within everything has to be cracked open and freed. Alchemy does it through mystical practices. Gnosticism does it by getting the thing in prison to realize that it's in prison and thus to shake free and gain the special knowledge necessary that it needs to be liberated. Sameness is violence. It is evidence of the violence against the other. The Gnostic, or sorry, the Hermetic religion believes that God needed to create the world as its abject other in order to understand itself as God by trapping all the shards of its being within all the mundane, those becoming freed through the alchemical processes of thinking individuals who are the special creatures of creation that have enough of the divine aspect to do it, to do that process, to free up the divine from all of the mundane, work all the divine stuff out. When it's Gnosticism, it's breaking everything free of the prison that it's in. And that prison, being in prison, gives you the special knowledge of what it's like to be in prison, and thus the need to be broken free of prison. See, most people don't know they're in prison, but they are. But the people who who know that they're in prison, therefore know they're in prison, and know that there needs to be liberation, and that there's another reality beyond it. So that's Gnostic Hermeticism. Sameness is violence is evidence of violence against the other. So there you go. This essay, the violence against the other, by the way, is keeping it in prison so that the divine shard can't come out. This essay has charted incest discourses and exposed their ableist presuppositions. As a theoretical exercise, cripping incest discourses reveals ableist ways of thinking, being, and doing. It also reveals a set of rules and frameworks that work to regulate people in particular ways and thus dictates what the future should look like. Remember, it's able-bodied, right? The incest taboo also reflects the ways in which particular sexual practices are legitimate while others are negated and disavowed. Rubin, 1984... I believe we're looking at thinking sex here, which we've read through, writes, quote, economic sanctions, family pressures, erotic stigma, social discrimination, negative ideology, and the paucity of information about erotic behavior all serve to make it difficult for people to make unconventional sexual choices. Dude, you're talking about fucking your mother, dude. What the? There are certainly structural constraints that impede free sexual choice, but they hardly operate to coerce anyone into being a pervert. On the contrary, they operate to coerce everyone toward normality. So that's Gail Rubin from Thinking Sex. We already went through Thinking Sex in a three-podcast series. Three podcast series. You should read it. But just to tell you, it really is the anchor of queer theory and how queer theory thinks. Here it appears in a paper about how we should 
all have incest because incest is just another sexual choice, but if we don't, we're participating in disabled eugenics. The rules of sexuality, Thornycroft tells us, and sexual practices work to regulate and coerce people into being normative subjects. Subscribing to the incest taboo reinstantiates abled-slash-ableist and heteronormative family structures. Is that what we want? Yes. Can we live in a world where the forces continue to try to eliminate crip and queerness? Definitely. Do we want to live in a world where all forms of non-normativity are attacked? I kind of think so. Maybe not all. Pretty damn close to all. All yours. For sure. Like, this weird shit? Like, yeah, definitely. Like, there are lines. Normal people can actually find the lines. It's the queer people who can't find the lines. I'm telling you, it's like a form of, of colorblindness or disability. They don't know where the lines are. It's just so obvious when you read their stuff. While my example explication of incestuous practices may not properly, quote, do justice to the specificities and implications of future incestuous practices, yeah, you just literally refused to do it to answer the question. You literally said, well, we have to do it. I'm not going to. I think it does introduce us to sets of questions about ableist and heteronormative thinking. Whether or not we believe in incestuous practices, it's important to think through the underlying discourses and practices through which disability is constituted in its prohibition, as well as the ways in which non-normative subject positions are discouraged and delegitimized. There's your subjectivity thing, conscious subject, Marxism, hello. Ultimately, the challenge is to think through and around these practices and trying to fascist... To, sorry, sorry. Ultimately, the challenge is to think through and around these practices and trying to fashion efficacious crip and queer futures. Funding. No funding was provided for the research of writing this manuscript. <laughs> no kidding. Ah, my goodness. No kidding. So, there you go. There you go. I'm just going to kind of leave that be. Cripping Incest Discourse, says, the S is in parentheses, by Ryan Thornycroft, appearing in Sexuality and Culture 2021, The Collision of Disability Studies and Queer Theory, so the dialectic progresses, so intersectionality progresses. I'm just going to leave it and let you just mull over that this is what academia, academia does today. This is what queer Marxism and disabled Marxism and their mated form of crip Marxism do. This is what it looks like. This is how the people think about the world. I hope it's been insightful. We're still celebrating Pride Month, so here's your incest pride paper. Um, I don't even... I don't, I don't have further commentary. I mean, I, everything that I could say, you're already thinking. I guarantee you. Everything I can say right now, you're already thinking. I covered all the detailed stuff and all the ocean of disgust and maybe other emotions. Everything I could say right now, I'm sure you're already thinking and you don't need me to say it for you. We'll see what we can do next time. I'm sure it'll be another winner. Sooner or later, I promise I'm going to get to um, Eve Sedgwick's Epistemology of the Closet, and you're going to hear the most Gnostic, since I said Gnostic like 500 times in this episode, it's seriously the most Gnostic thing I've ever read, ever. And so you're going to understand that what we are dealing with when I read that first chapter, which is the original essay titled The Epistemology of the Closet, which means a theory of knowledge of being in, that comes from being in the closet. That's what that means. 
you're going to understand that being in the closet gives you special insight because it's your Gnostic prison and that allows you to break free of the world. It's the most Gnostic thing ever. And you're going to understand that what we're dealing with is gigantic, largely Gnostic, as other components like Hermetic alchemy, but largely Gnostic religious cult movement that has taken over virtually everything. And that situates us in a very particular spiritual and religious war that has to be fought. It's the same war that is depicted in Genesis chapter 3 with the snake. Same war. Still going on. So, we'll keep building toward that. We'll catch you soon.